you have your handout, and some of you that don't have it will have it in just a moment when some extra copies get here. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Colossians 1. I was hoping to get through a bunch of verses today, but as I started writing notes on it, I got bogged down again, so we aren't going to cover a ton, uh, but I don't feel like we're in any hurry. So, Colossians 1, I'm going to read verses 15 to 20 again, like I did last week. And just by way of information, on your handout, uh, if you keep them, uh, you'll notice, but if not, maybe you won't. Uh, I left uh, the quotes that we did not get to last week on there for you, because um, we're not going to be going back to the material we covered last time via those quotes. I mean, we, we will, of course, discuss around 15 and the first half of 16 there, but I wanted you to have them again for your, your own records. Um, in case you didn't keep last week's notes and would like to keep these. And uh, the reason I, I gave it for those quotes specifically is because they're both from Calvin, and he really kind of dives into the meat and draws on some of the history of the issues that are being covered in uh, that uh, phrase about Christ being the firstborn of every creature that we talked about last time. Okay, so Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Who is, Christ is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is begin our discussion kind of in the middle of verse 16. If you remember last week, we covered the first phrase there, for by him were all things created. So now we're going to begin to look at that are in heaven and uh, on forth uh, from there. Remember, what Paul is doing is showing the magnitude of uh, Christ's glory, uh, that he is supreme over all creation. Uh, he is also going to get into the fact that he is supreme over not just the things that are visible and made that we can see with our eyes, but he is also supreme over the things that are invisible and made that are not visible to our eyes. Um, <clears throat> and that relates especially to uh, the false teachers, because as we've seen, they were dealing especially uh, in things like special types of philosophy, traditions of men, and uh, such as that, that would not have necessarily related to things that are seen, but a certain special knowledge. And the sources of that, they argue, would have been things like angels. Anyway, let's get into uh, our text here. Um, 
You remember maybe last time we, we talked about how uh, Davenant frame versus um, 15 to 20 in three ways. Uh, it talks about Christ, I'm just going to write X, Christ's relation to God. And then Christ's relation to creation in general. And then Christ's relation to the church. And you kind of see that in those uh, verses I just read. Um, but as I was looking at another uh, commentary um, last night... Um, there will be something that we'll get into towards the end. Kind of another breakdown of it. It's, it's not different uh, than this, uh, but it does kind of simplify it even a little more. All right, so verse 16, starting with things that are in heaven. <clears throat> he goes on to show, as I said, the same Christ whom they preached. He had shed his blood for our redemption. That was in verse 14, and the forgiveness of our sins. That same Christ created all things at every level of creation. And then we get to the first quote on your handout there uh, from G.K. Beale. It says, uh, verse 16 now explains the reason for Christ's preceding titles of divine preexistence. And he's talking about those in verse 15. So the two titles, image of the invisible God, firstborn of every creature. So the reason for that, they underscore his sovereignty over the cosmos. Christ is the divine image and the ruler of all things because he is the agent of all creation and as such he existed before the creation. And you remember we got into that last time about how Paul applies uh, these things that the divine son did before the incarnation to the person of Jesus Christ as if he himself uh, had done them but it's showing the unity of the two natures of Christ. And I would uh, commend to you, if you want to go back and listen, I've uploaded the audio from last week because that was quite a uh, head stretcher, and I don't have time to get back into it today. But let's look at the four levels that Paul uh, thinks of. Maybe you don't want to speak of them as four different levels because they're not totally distinct from one another in every way, but there are four things mentioned in verse 16. Uh, the first thing are the things in heaven, right? So, things that are in heaven. The second thing are, uh, second thing is things that are in the earth. Uh, the third thing he says is visible, and the fourth thing is that which is invisible. And uh, by the way, that first quote that I read a moment ago is probably on the back of the first page, uh, because on the front you probably still have the remainder of the Calvin stuff. So um, there's a little line that I put in the page where the quotes from last week ended and the ones from today uh, began. Uh, another quote should be there on your handout from Matthew Henry. It says, He made all things out of nothing, the highest angel in heaven, as well as men upon the earth. He made the world, the upper and lower world, with all the inhabitants of both. And remember that Paul is applying this He's not telling them, think about God the Son pre-incarnate. He's not uh, telling them to think about uh, God the Father. 
He's speaking of Jesus Christ, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one who is the firstborn, the preeminent one, the greatest one over all creation. And verse 15 and 16 are clearly linked because verse 16 begins with the word for, meaning something like, uh, we know this because all things were created by him, right? Things that are in heaven, things that are on earth, things that are visible, and things that are invisible. But what about those things that uh, he lists in the second half of verse 16? And this is where it's going to get uh, a little fun. What part of the list does uh, or do thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers belong to. Now, if you'll flip a little bit ahead in your outline, I probably should have put these er earlier, um, but it's right towards the end. It's four Greek terms I gave you that are listed. <clears throat> you should see one, two, three, four. All right, y'all see those? Yes. All right, what page is that on? Twelve. All right, page 12, all right. So page 12, you see four Greek terms listed there. And I've given you the breakdown of what the four terms that Paul uses there because uh, different translations kind of do different things with them. Um, let's, I just want to read them for you real quick, and maybe you can hear familiar words in them. Uh, by the way, they are all plural nouns uh, that are stated there. Um, the first one is thronoi. That kind of sounds like thrones, doesn't it? Right? Thronoi, if you want to say it like that. The second one is curiotetes. All right, not, not as familiar, but that's dominion. The third one is archai. The fourth one is exousia. Exousiae. Uh, however you want to put the enunciation there. Right, but uh, the first one kind of sounds exactly like the word itself, especially as the King James translates it as thrones. But the third word there, we'll get into it in a moment, is the word for, what is it, Andrew? Beginning. beginning, right? The word for beginning. RK is the singular form. But remember, that has a lot to do with what Paul is saying about Jesus, doesn't it? About how he is the beginning. You see it in the middle of verse 18, who is the beginning. The singular form of the word used in verse 16 is used in verse 18. We'll get into that. I keep getting ahead of myself. But let's look at this uh, next quote on your handout to begin to talk about these things, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. This quote is from uh, John Gill. Um, the things that are in heaven are the things that are in the airy and starry heavens and in the heaven of heavens. The things in the airy heavens, the fowls thereof, were on the fifth day created by him. And the things in the starry heaven, the sun, moon, and stars, were on the fourth day ordained by him. And the inhabitants of the third heaven, the angels, were made by him. All right, so he's arguing that when it refers to heavenly things in this verse, that it's speaking of the three different levels of heaven. Now, do you remember at the end of 2 Corinthians where Paul speaks about going up to the third heaven. And he saw things that he could not speak of. That should immediately tell you the credibility of people who say they went to heaven and can tell you what it was like. If the Apostle Paul was unable to describe it, 
I'd be hard pushed to say that anybody else could, right? Because he was guided by the Holy Spirit. That's almost like, it's, I mean, it is like saying the Holy Spirit didn't give him anything to describe it with. But that's one way to think of the things of heaven, right? The things that are in heaven. Um, I don't remember, and I don't feel like getting it out and taking the time. But I'd imagine that the word there in verse 16 is heaven and not heavens. And what that means is the way that the Bible thinks of it is as one place, though broken out into three parts. Because actually in the Hebrew as well, when it speaks of God creating uh, all things, it says that in the beginning God um, made the heaven and the earth. It doesn't say heavens in the Hebrew. It says heaven. I believe so. I believe memory is correct on that. Let's drive a little further in this, about thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers. This is a a longer quote. This is from John Gill. Again, he says, they're all made by him. He says, by these, some understand civil magistrates among men, and the various degrees and order of them. And here he's going to explain it. So, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Some think that refers to specifically earthly things, uh, kings or monarchs, he says, or men who sit on thrones, or by dominions, like petty kings or lords, dukes and earls, very English here, right? And by principalities, governors of provinces and cities, and by powers, inferior magistrates. It says, and indeed, political governors are sometimes called dominions, dignities, principalities, and powers. There are different orders of them. The king is supreme, and governors are under him. He cites uh, some scripture there for you if you want to go look at it. But, since these seem rather to be said of the invisible things in heaven, notice he's making an assumption there, but it's based on the context of Colossians overall. Since these things seem rather to be said of the invisible things in heaven, and to be an explanation of them, angels may rather be thought to be intended. So he's saying that it's more likely that angels are being intended in this first, uh, this list of four. And he says, and they are so called, not as denoting different orders and degrees among them, right? So not getting into the speculation of which angel is greater or whatever, which some rashly venture to describe, but because of the use that God makes of them in the government of the world and the executions of the various affairs of providence relating to particular persons and kingdoms. Though these several names are not so much as the apostle chose to call them by, as what they were called by others. The three latter are indeed elsewhere used by himself, Ephesians 1 and 3, Colossians 2, but not the former thrones, which yet are used by Jewish writers and given to angels. Now, let me unpack a little bit of what he's saying there. He's saying that it doesn't refer exclusively to um, earthly rulers, but that it refers primarily to heavenly rulers and that God is, he's kind of like through Paul throwing them a bone, as it were, granting the terms that the Colossians had throwing had been uh, had been thrown at them, right? That the way that these false teachers were teaching about angel, angels, that he's saying that 
Even those things, whether they be this, that, or the other, Christ created them as well insofar as they are real. And he also tries to uh, apply it to the fact that, as, as we know from the Old Testament, there, that there's a certain level at which uh, there is spiritual guidance over earthly powers, whether it be good or evil, and that that is probably in mind here. And here's another quote. It's from uh, G.K. Beale. He says, Also among all created things are thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Saying the same thing there. The focus is upon invisible heavenly sovereignties, though secondarily earthly rulers are in mind to the degree that they are represented by the heavenly potentates. And he gives you some scripture and cites another book. But that both heavenly and earthly powers are in mind is apparent from the observation that the list of these various kinds of powers is a further explanation of the preceding things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Let me start right there. What he's saying, he's saying the same thing as Gill, but he's kind of explaining it differently. He's saying that Paul is elaborating on the fact that Christ has made all things, whether in heaven and in the earth, whether visible and invisible, and it's as if he says, and that includes those four things. Right? That Christ has made all of them, and so far again, as they are real, whether they be visible or invisible, whether it's a visible throne or an invisible throne, a visible dominion or an invisible dominion, etc., etc., all of them were created by him, and, verse 16 says, for him. They are to serve him. <clears throat> and resuming in the quote there, he says, texts in Judaism use the same kinds of expressions the various types of angelic powers that God created. Probably evil authorities in heaven are primarily in mind, though all unseen good angels are in the peripheral vision of Paul, since the same rulers and authorities are mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10 and 15, and they are malevolent there, evil. Uh, jump down there, skip all that Greek. Uh, it says, It is obvious in 2.15, chapter 2, verse 15 of Colossians, that the rulers and authorities are evil and unseen. But perhaps it is not so clear in chapter 2, verse 10. Nevertheless, we see that chapter 2, verse 10 alludes to evil invisible powers over whom Christ is sovereign. And we shall see there that Christ's rule over these powers is related to the Colossians' protection from false teaching. So him showing the supremacy of Christ over these, one shows, again, Christ's sovereignty and control over them, but also the fact that they have been defeated by Christ, as he says in another place, shows that the, the elect in Colossae were protected from the errors that these spiritual hosts might lead false teachers to teach because Christ had triumphed over them. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. It speaks to clearly to why Christ was able to, as he began his ministry, encounter the demons. Mm -hmm. Explains again the power that he had for them. There was no rebuttal, there was no, you know, nothing. They mm -hmm. knew who he was. I mean, that, that, that ties those two very strongly together. Also, yeah. So. Right. Yeah, and there's, there's also... Uh, 
you almost get the sense from reading some Old Testament passages that the atonement had not just an earthly and salvific effect, but an effect in the invisible realms as well. Um, and one of those uh, you see um, with the, the transition. There are certain passages that speak about angels carrying out the judgment of God. But that's primarily what happened in the Old Testament. We know that when Christ returns again, he won't use the angels per se in that sense. He will carry it out himself. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we will judge angels. It's because of this transition that has happened. And Andrew used the word uh, cosmology last week, I believe it was, and I think it was uh, quoted in one of the things I've read so far. But we need to think more uh, in that frame of mind, the cosmos, the, the, uh, the, the way to think about cosmology. Because Christ's work, uh, it did not just affect the earth. It affected the heavens. That is the whole cosmos, as we think of it. I'm a little confused trying to coordinate what Gill is saying versus what Bill is saying. Okay. Seems to me that Gill is putting more emphasis. Maybe not. Well, let me, let me go at it another way. Right. I, mean, I get the impression, maybe from even both of them, that that the reference is principally to heavenly powers. At least certainly Gill makes it that clear. And secondarily, to earthly powers. Mm-hmm. To me, to me, I, I, I'm having trouble. First of all, that's early. But I get that he goes to Jewish authors. Okay, mm, that, that's fine. Sure. But, but I'm having trouble with that intellectually because I have we know so little about angels. I mean, mm-hmm. to try to try to to try to understand something by putting it into an abstract principle element versus a, a, a concrete principle element. Just it just it just brings confusion into the matter. And I, I get where they're coming from, but let me tell you where I'm getting to from a practical implication. Is it, is it, I was reading, might be off reading, but I read this the first, when you were going through this, and I read this, I said, well, you know, it's kind of hard not to see Christ's relationship to the civil magistrate, to all mankind, to all mm-hmm. creation, because those words were used, mm-hmm. okay, and that, you know, and, and in a way, modern theology has kind of neutered back that element. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm hearing, I'm hearing, well, you know, so did Gill and so did Bill, okay, so I'm, I'm having, I'm having, I mean, you know, Bill kind of says, well, it's both. I mean, I kind of read, maybe I'm reading it, reading it more that way. Maybe, maybe a lower certain He sees it as both. Whereas, help me out here, Trent. Yes. Uh, is it, it certainly isn't not to include the earthly power. Right, yeah, and I think, I think they both throw a bone to that. But I think based on the context of Colossians overall and the error that they were facing, that the important emphasis is going to be on that very much unknown to us and speculative, but heavenly reality, nonetheless, invisible, right? And that's why Paul gives that, that breakdown, whether it's visible or invisible. And because he, he qualifies it in that way, I think you could say thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, that all of those things refer um, probably to the heavenly realm. But we also know that the heavenly realm influences the earthly, and Paul includes the visible, so that would be 
uh, thrown in there as well. Um, so, go ahead. Paul says that all rulers on earth receive their authority from God, right? The argument that he is refuting there isn't that, isn't between either rulers receive their authority by the will of the people or rulers receive their authority by the will of God. It's not a modern argument. The argument is rulers receive authority by some other heavenly or we live in a world where we don't we don't even think about the relationship between the invisible and visible. Yeah. But the Bible, that is the world of the Bible. Right. So what Paul says in Romans 13, the heavenly all the earthly authorities receive their authority from God. What he's saying is there's no other God above God. There's no other Rome isn't receiving its authority from Jupiter. Greeks weren't receiving their authority to rule from Zeus, mm -hmm. right? It's God alone, and he is the one who gives the authority to be from Yeah, so like I, I think Paul is is granting some credibility to their words. He's let's say being all things to all people, right? Where he's borrowing their vocabulary. But you also see it in chapter two, verse fifteen, one of the verses that Beale kept referencing, 
it says that Christ has spoiled or looted, plundered, taken captive principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So where did Christ make this show openly? You could argue it's in his resurrection and his ascension, but also there's a heavenly element to it, right? That it would have been seen in that, uh, in that heavenly realm, uh, the things that we don't have eyes to see. And when, when you kind of begin to look at the Bible this way, in, uh, I mean, one of the popular words to use it is in an enchanted way, um, because the world of the Bible, the cosmos of which Christianity existed in, is exactly what Andrew's saying. It was, thing, it was a place that recognized heavenly reality, spiritual powers in all places. Not just, like, the Romans didn't just say uh, Zeus is the best. They didn't say he was the best and the only god. They just said he was the best because he was theirs. They didn't deny the reality of these other gods and all those things. And you'll notice that in Paul's arguments here, he never tells them they aren't real. He just says that Christ is greater and he's defeated them, right? And Satan would be... Obviously included in that, um, I would say. Uh, just say they're demonic. Yeah. Right. So that we throw the word around the demon, we think a little, you know, state tension. But that's not well, demons. You can argue. I mean, that that's included in it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But yeah. like, maybe the fallen, whatever you want to say, but they're real. They have Satan is not omnipresent. The power of Satan is omni is everywhere because of the Antichrist sort of theology. The presence of sin. Presence of sin. Yeah. Right. So there's like this the ubiquity of evil isn't because Satan is running around everywhere, you know, poking everyone and making them do bad things. And it's not just because demons are everywhere poking, you know, it's sin. It's that whole operation of the Antichrist that exists both on Earth and in the cosmos that is being bound and being defeated. And we will see at the last day its ultimate defeat. Mm -hmm. Like I think about like Lewis, C.S. Lewis does a great job of this. Where makes us realize that our senses are so diminished that we can't even see the reality that we really exist in. But there's going to be a moment, there's going to be a time when we'll see stuff that's always existed, has always been happening around us, but we've just had not had the capacity to perceive. Mm -hmm. And we're finally going to understand not whole but in part what really has been going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I finally got the bill, the Bill peeled. <laughs> the pill. Okay. Let me tell you how I got it down. Okay. I got it down by uh, uh, the word angel. I'm putting angel, the word issue. I don't see the word angel in the text here. Mm -hmm. To me, that's introducing a, a, a. Okay. I certainly see this is true. The reason I was able to get the pill down was I think if you really get down to it, there are two types of people in this world. There are those in Christ. And there are those that are really in Satan or not in Christ. Okay, they're, 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 we are in essence, even though we are real tangible entities, we are in essence either in one of those two camps. Mm -hmm. Our, we are influenced by that that power, that, mm -hmm. that spiritual heavenly power. Okay, that part I, I'm able to swallow and get it all down. But once I once you try to translate that into the word angel, my mind just doesn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I don't know how to. I can get the idea, the abstract idea of heavenly powers, okay, and those being in Christ and those being out of Christ. 
Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to put it in terms on my account. I, I just can't swallow the word when, when you when you try to wrap this. You got a very confusing idea, and when you it, it sort of reminds me of Laplace transforms in math. When you try to solve a problem, you convert it into another language. It's hard to swallow. So. Yeah, for sure. And I I think it is confusing to us just because of the way we view the world now, um, and the way we view these heavenly things. Like, I mean, no slight to Mr. Ed, but I mean, it's true for me as well. Like, this, even trying to explain it and write it down in words, even though, you know, I've got a lot of quotes here, it feels very foreign, right? Like, you know, we, when I grew up, you kind of, you kind of made fun of the Christians that talked about guardian angels, right? Maybe, maybe my family was just ungodly, but, um, you know, you know, you pray for a hedge of protection, but you think that God does that himself, that he doesn't use the angels to do it. If he does, you know, that's weird and I don't really want to think about it. Right? If you go back and read, um, especially the prayers of Christians at night, right before they go to bed, they are always praying for protection against the invisible hosts. Always. Because there was this understanding that they had. It was a different type of world. And these words, um, I mean, it would be like, I mean, imagine if Paul wrote to the church of Grace Presbyterian Church in Aiken, and then it was read by the first uh, Presbyterian Church of New Delhi. Right? He would be using words and concepts that would probably be very foreign to them. Now, they would try to translate it into their language, but I think that's what we're running into here. And especially... Uh, when you consider the Greek terms behind these four, um, I think they point to the way that they might have been being used by Paul's opponents. And this is, we're back at your list here. Perhaps, again, Paul is playing the game with them, being all things to all people, granting the power, quotations, of their imagined mediators. Because these words are, are often used um, to refer uh, to the angelic host. Um, and when I say angelic host, I mean good and evil, right? Just the spiritual beings, and we call them angels, yeah. But, you know, sadly, when we think of angels, we kind of think of, you know, somebody who looks like Thor, right? Or a, a beautiful woman who's an angel, even though there are no records of female angels in the Bible. It's really weird. All the angels in the Bible are men, which is quite bizarre, but that just tells you how different they are. Uh, than us. But these four words, uh, especially uh, the, the third one, because I, I'm most uh, comfortable with that one and, and know a little bit more about it. The third word, as I quiz Andrew on, it's often used for the concept of beginning. Uh, that, again, it's, it's plural in verse 16, archai, or RK, uh, RKI, uh, but the, the singular is just, it looks like this. Okay, I mean, that's, that's what it looks like. And <clears throat> it was used not just in a, a temporal sense, right? And this is why I highlighted some of this stuff, I believe it was a week ago, um, at, at verse 18 where it reads, uh, who is the beginning, that Christ is the beginning. You have the singular form of this word, 
Paul seems to want to say, if we're going to play with words the way that he is, that Christ is the beginning of beginnings. Right? Which kind of relates to him saying that he's the firstborn of every creature. Or that he is not just the beginning, but the firstborn from the dead. Right? So he's not just the firstborn and the beginning, but he's also the firstborn from the dead. Right? He's playing on all these titles that would probably have been used. He is, uh, to use it the way that King James uses it, the principality of all principalities. Trent, yes? I'm still struggling okay. with angels. But when I, when I read Bill's quote here, I'm trying to get, well, first of all, the, the Gill quote refers to Jewish authors. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to put Jewish writers off to the side. I'm trying to get what is the Bible actually referring to. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to cite Jewish writers, okay? So I go down here to Bill, and in the Bill quote, he cites Daniel and Revelation. Okay, I haven't read all of these yet, but I go to you know, Revelation following his quotes. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, he writes. Okay, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, he writes. Okay, to the angel in the church of Thyatira, he writes. Okay, now, that angel that he's referring to the question is, is he referring to a heavenly angel who represents those church? Or as Durham, the Scottish theologian, sure, the sure. local commentary, would say he's really referring to the ministers who who are, yes, they're real tangible elements, but they represent, they they're basically are a, 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 they basically represent, I mean, you know, an angel in a sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they are a messenger. All right, so so you see where I'm coming from. I, I'm still having trouble swallowing. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in angels. I'm not sure what they are or where, what to do with them. Okay, mm-hmm. I just can't intellectually get my mind around what they are. I'm just trying to not confuse a Christian understanding with a Jewish understanding. I got gotcha. you. So I'm just trying to get down to what when he these heavenly powers. You see, my struggle, I'm struggling with trying to get down. What really, not, not, you know, I get where, I get he quotes, Gil quotes the Jewish writers. I get where sure, he's coming sure, from. Sure. But what really is Paul saying? He doesn't use the word angels here. Okay. That's in chapter 2, verse 18. Okay, all right, let's look at that. Okay, let's, let's go. Lord, help me out here. Okay, thank you. Well, before we get to 218, because that's very important. Well, uh, I'll wait. I'll, no, 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 I want to okay, address okay, what you I'll just wait. said. Because right. you just explained it in a way that, satisfied me to the way that Gill and Beale explained it. That it there is a heavenly sense. Yes. But there's also an earthly sense. Yes. However, in Colossians, because of the error, the heavenly sense was to be drawn the primary emphasis. Because they weren't being led astray by earthly thrones and principalities and powers. Okay. Unless you want to speak of okay. unless you want to speak of you know, false teachers in that sense of holding But I also, I think that you're getting at the tension of the way that the Bible often describes things. That there's a closer union between the heavenly and the earthly than we might want to realize. Right? Because there's a reason that the Holy Spirit chose the word that is 90% of the time translated angel to refer to whoever the leader is of the church in Thyatira. Mm-hmm. Right? And Durham's not wrong, I don't think, to say that it's the pastor, but there's some kind of weird intimate relationship Amen. between Amen. the heavenly yeah. angel 
and the earthly angel that serves the congregation. I, and I think it's, it's getting at It's just a, a weird way to view things compared to the way we think about it. Um, so in verse 18, like Mr. Lee brought up, let's start at verse, uh, no, 18, yeah. Let no man beguile you or defraud you of your reward in a voluntary humility, right? but delighting in false humility is the idea. So let no man take your reward from you by teaching you a false humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head. Right? So what's he saying there? Again, this gets into uh, the false teaching, probably a verse we should have read uh, sooner. But he speaks here and kind of gives you an idea of what they were saying, that they were teaching them that it was humble to worship the angels rather than to worship Christ. We don't get all the details on that, but that there's this imagined humility, right? Kind of like, uh, honestly, the way the Roman Catholics uh, present using mediators other than Jesus Christ, right? I wouldn't be so bold as to go before Jesus. I'll use one of these other mediators that I know has his ear. It's false humility, right? Um, but he draws in the worshiping of angels, the honoring, the reverencing of angels, the trusting in them. Because when the false teachers do this, he says in verse 18, they're intruding into those things which they have not seen. Again, pointing not to an earthly reality, but an invisible one, a heavenly one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why Paul takes it so seriously. Yeah. Being bringing in the vainly puffed up, I flipped my mind. I mean, mm. I'm bringing, I'm bringing ideas into that mm-hmm. that makes an angel something that's not. Okay, that's why I have trouble. I'm yeah. just having trouble intellectually translating an idea, having to understand an idea through the idea of an angel. Right. Which is impossible. You're, you're using a math that it, it can't get through my brain. Yeah. So. No, I mean you get. I mean the two descriptions that come to mind to me in the Bible of angels uh, is how uh, I would say most occasions when an angel appears the people are afraid and then Gabriel right okay yeah Gabriel well, what, right. about, what about the angels that, that took care of Jesus after temptation right yeah that's true the they are the tomb whenever Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most in the people take that. In the Old Testament, when the battle was being held and was concerned, and then and he gave a glimpse of all the host. Mm-hmm. Were, oh, they're all right. And then you've got the angels in Ezekiel and Revelation that, I hope they don't look like that. It's freaky. <laughs> I'm going to run out of heaven, probably. Jeez, I I mean, not really, but you know what I'm saying. They're so just freaky sounding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I think there's a, a point to that. The, the Bible doesn't say a lot of description that we can really wrap our minds around with angels, but it also doesn't say a lot about heaven either. It says some, but Paul says he went there and couldn't describe it when he came back. Um, but yeah, this again, we are inundated with a 
materialist and worldly point of view with the way we treat all things, right? So much so that we deny the existence of anything that's spiritual unless it's ours. Right? Now, we do agree, even though those spiritual things exist, that Christ is supreme over all, them, all of them. There's not an equal Savior in other religions. That's not the point I'm making, but that those other things do really exist. Um, so, uh, also, um, moving on, got a couple minutes here. Let me see if I can get through this last little bit. Um, to use uh, to use Paul's words again, he's he's repeating these terms for his various purposes to show the triumph of Christ even over the invisible uh, powers. Um, there's another uh, Greek term that is important. Um, back in verse uh, 15, that word for Firstborn. I don't think I put this in your outline, but it is uh, prototokos, right? Pro, which is first or before, uh, and totokos, which would obviously mean uh, something to the effect of firstborn. Uh, But Paul says in verse 18 that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. But in verse 15, he calls him the firstborn of every creature. He's showing, again, the preeminence of Christ. He is greater than whatever mediator, whatever angel, to borrow from chapter 2, verse 18, whatever false humility you might think that you are acquiring. He is greater and has triumphed over all of them, even to the the point of chapter 2, verse 15. He has plundered them. He has plundered those powers. Now, a place that you also see this is in the Gospels. And it's, uh, I know it's at least in Mark, and I think in Matthew, it might be in Luke as well, but I don't think it's in John, where he talks about the binding of the strong man, where the, there's a strong man, he guards his house, uh, but there's a stronger one who comes who binds him and plunders his goods. Right? And that really plays into the idea of what Paul is saying here. That Christ has plundered one who was strong, but one who has ultimately been defeated, the devil and all of his workers. And we are the plunder of Christ. We are the treasure that Christ has taken from the enemy. Um, Let's look at this last quote here, last two quotes. They're both from Beale. Um, This might not be smart, but I'm going to try to do it quick. It says, consequently, the reference to such powers in verse 16 anticipates part of Paul's argument against the false teaching besetting the Colossians. Though this reference itself has been anticipated earlier by the singular reference to the authority of darkness, chapter 1, verse 13, so there's more there too, which confirms the malevolent nature of these beings in verse 16. The point is, as will become more evident in chapter 2, 4, 8, 10, that the hearers should not be deceived, because Christ is the ruler over the invisible powers that are inspiring this wrong teaching through the false teachers. And the next quote, this is probably why Paul does not focus on other parts of all the creation in verse 16, because Mr. Ed's kind of getting hung up on the level of the references being to creation or the heavenlies. Paul also doesn't uh, elaborate on trees, seas, mountains, rivers, forests, or anything like that. Rather, he immediately focuses on the invisible authorities that were created, since he's going to say more clearly later that Christ has defeated them their king. Now, let me give these last little bit here. At verse 18, there is a shift in focus as well. 
and it kind of relates to those three points I wrote from Davenant last week. The focus begins to be the church, right? Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, firstborn from the dead, right? The resurrection has a particular reference to the church, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And in verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell, and then, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. It begins to take on a more, uh, use a big word, soteriological uh, context, right? a, a context that relates more to salvation than Christ's crea- uh, preeminence as creator and God the Son. So the focus begins to be the church, and what Beale argues, I didn't give you the quote because it was so long and hard to give you enough quotes, but... Verse 15 to 17 shows Christ as supreme over the old creation. All right? The old creation, the one that has passed away. But verses 18 to 20 show Christ as supreme over the new creation. Right? And that begins to make a lot of sense as you move forward through this. That Christ has, he, he doesn't just reference things that were true about Christ from creation. Because you could say a lot of verses 15 to 17 without reference to the incarnation. You could. But you can't say at all verses 18 through 20 without reference to the incarnation. So he's referring to one thing, Bill says in verses 15 to 17, and then in verses 18 to 20, he's showing that. This is true, and Christ is also the head of the body, the church. That there is a new creation, which coincidentally, not really coincidentally at all, providentially, we'll get into our sermon. But notice the different things that are highlighted there in verses 18 to 20, and then we'll be done. The first thing is the body, or the church. The second thing is firstborn from the dead. The third thing is peace through the blood of his cross. The fourth is reconciling all things to himself. And then at the end of verse 20, Paul goes back to his point at the end of verse 16, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Christ's triumph is not just as creator and God the Son, but as Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. And he is supreme over old creation realities and new creation realities. And because of that work of Christ, it's a different time than it was. Look at your watch, because the time has changed. All right. Uh, we have like no time for questions or whatever, but if anybody has something really quick that you're just eating at you. Didn't, don't, isn't it correct that early, uh, that, am I wrong about one third of the angels were thrown out of heaven basically? Is that correct? I, I would not maybe, venture to even know. You know, back in, <laughs> yeah. uh, they were, Am I wrong? And there is uh, in Second Peter and Jude. Yeah. You have a reference to a certain number of angels that fell at some point in the past yeah. and are bound in chains until the last day. And you even have an understanding of this in the Gospels because at one point, I think it's only in Mark, the demons respond to Jesus and say, "Is it already the time?" But isn't isn't a lot of those angels? Uh, uh, there are angels that that really are Satan's oh, yeah. Satan's enemy, Satan's dominion, Satan's direct uh, demons, if you will. Sure. They yeah. work they, they work for the, the God for Satan. 
So, in in effect, and they're pretty powerful. I mean, just look around us empirically. Mm -hmm. You say what's happening today in such a short time? Yes, it's man's inherent sinfulness, but but there's a spiritual element to the darkness that is so quickly spreading worldwide right now. And I have to say, and that's maybe, yeah, it's Satan, but it's also demonic powers, I'm sure, that are involved in that. So thank God there's a whole series of, of, of good guys yeah. <laughs> running yeah. around in the back that are, that are it, it could even get worse Real, even even faster if all those good guys were on Satan's side, but they're not. They're on Christ's side. They're the angels that sure. hopefully are interceding and helping, doing God's bidding in some way. You yeah, know? and I mean, maybe um, that's simplistic. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, you're you're grabbing at a lot of things there. Um, but the first thing I would say is something I brought up from First Corinthians earlier. How Paul mentions that we will judge angels at the last day. Like, what, what does that even mean? And then the second thing, angels, evil angels, will also suffer eternally with the devil and all the unbelievers. Right? Satan doesn't rule over he uh, hell, of course not heaven, but he doesn't rule over hell either. God does. And he will cast not just evil men and women, boys and girls, but evil spirits into those places or that place to lake of fire forever. Yeah. We're in chapter 1, verse 10. Yeah. Uh, he says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Maybe it's verse 9. Verse 9. So it's in chapter 1. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's pray.